Hello, I'm Howard Hocking and welcome to the latest 9320 History Pod, where we will be looking back in two parts, I imagine, at the era of a certain Joe Mercer and Malcolm Allison in the 1960s and early 70s, looking back at one of our most successful periods in our history. I'm delighted to be joined by Twitter's Presswitch Blue, aka Colin Savage. Hello, Colin. How are you doing? Hello, Howard. I'm fine, thank you. Yep, I'm uh, looking forward to this. It's been reading up and it's been educational for me as well. Uh, yeah. well so, someone did someone did accuse me of uh, watching Tommy Johnson when I did my first history podcast. <laughs> and the cheeky side is two years older than me, so he had no room to talk. I definitely didn't see Tommy Johnson. But the Mercer Allison years were, were my era, but I'll talk about we'll talk, yeah. we'll talk about that in a minute. Fresh, fresh in your mind though. Is uh, yeah we'll we'll plunge straight in and I think it's best that we start before Mercer and Allison. Uh, and look back at the couple of years uh, around 1963 onwards, because I think it's unfair as saying it wasn't the best period in City's history, this. It was probably one of the worst periods in City's history. I know people talk about 98, 99, but in those days we had someone like John Wardle, we had David Bernstein. Yeah, th- th- there was kind of hope for the future, and every yeah. City fans expected we'd go forward. City in the 1960s was not a cool place to be, it was not in a good place. Um, and, and to go back just a few years, we'd had quite a good team in the mid-1950s. So it's the era of Bert Troutman, Bobby Johnston, Don Reavy. Um, we'd been in two consecutive cup finals. We probably should have done better in the league than we did. Uh, the manager was Les McDowell, who was heavily influenced by the legendary Hungarian team of the 50s. And, and he'd introduced a lot of tactical innovations based on the Hungarians. When we got to the early 60s, that team had sort of fallen apart a little bit. And there was a mix of experienced players and, and young players. And Les McDowell didn't really seem to have a lot of ideas of his own left. He, he was our longest serving manager, actually. So from, from yeah. 1950 to 1963, uh, 13 years, Les McDowell was the manager. And I think unless you're an Arsene Wenger or a Alex Ferguson, then you do tend to run out of ideas a bit. And that era was one where there weren't a lot of great tactical innovations, apart from the ones that the Hungarians had shown to when they trounced England at Wembley in whatever, 1953, I think it was. So, so we're getting to about 1960 and, and, and Les McDowell has kind of run out of ideas. The team is breaking up. Um, we're kind of slipping backwards. And um, in 1963, 62-63, uh, after I think flirting with uh, relegation of the previous season, um, City were relegated. So... As a result, um, and, and, and that was also our, I think, was it? No, it wasn't. Actually, I tell a lie. Um, I thought it was our longest spell in the first division. I just not quite got that one right in my head, but not not really important. But 1963, City relegated. Yeah. Uh, McDowell is sat. And average crowds went down fairly considerably, started to go down fairly considerably during that period. Uh, I've got, a note somewhere. So we'd been getting crowds of about 35, average crowds of about 35K around 1959, 1960. And they started dropping off. Yeah. And it was an era where, of course, clubs' uh, main source of income was ticket money. Virtually the only source of income was, was ticket money and a bit of advertising stuff on the, on the side. So um, lower crowds meant lower revenue. And lower revenue meant you were unable to buy kind of better players or, you know, yeah. pay, pay uh, a bigger squad. 
So, Elliot, Les McDowell was sacked, and as I say, he'd been there 13 years, so the board wasn't really look, used to looking for a new manager. And the man they appointed in his place was basically his assistant, a guy called George Poyser. Poyser had been brought in late in the 50s to basically manage the scouting network. It was, so he wasn't really, invo- wasn't really a coach. He wasn't really involved actively in the day-to-day coaching. Uh, but, but he was known to the players. That was, the club was familiar to him, obviously. Uh, he knew a lot of the players because he scouted them. So, so Poyser was, was uh, made manager. And um, because he was mainly a scout, and he used to claim, I think Poyser claimed, he travelled something like 80,000 miles a year on club business. Um, but he wasn't involved, say, as I say, he wasn't involved in the training. Uh, and he didn't get involved in the training. I think Johnny Hart at the time was doing the training. And at the time, training tended to be, tended to be fairly rudimentary. So it tended to be laps of the pitch. And, and, and the training, reading up actually, the training routine in those days um, was um, the players would play a practice game on the Tuesday. And that would be the last time they would see the ball until uh, match on the Saturday. Yeah. Uh, and basically the rest of it would be running, strength, training, and the theory was that if the players didn't have the ball for you know Wednesday through to Friday, they would be hungry for it on Saturday. Which, of course, nowadays when you look at it nowadays, and you look at people like Pep uh, and the way they use the ball, and uh, every coach, of course, every manager, uh, the ball is an integral part of training now. Use of the ball and movement off on and off the ball, but but that wasn't the done thing in those days. So. Um, Training was say very rudimentary, running around the pitch, running around the park, whatever. Um, Poyser was rarely seen at, at, at training. And there's a bit of a dispute on whether he was actually a fairly. Uh, one account says he was a fairly popular figure. Another account says he was fairly distant and authoritarian. And, and certainly, um, and, and one person I should pay credit to, we, it, you mentioned him earlier on, is Gary James, because without Gary's kind of stuff. We would not know half of this stuff, I suspect. Yeah. And if you've not read um, Gary's excellent book, Joe Mercer, Football with a Smile, then do it um, because it's a fantastic book. And he also wrote the, the standard reference work on City, Manchester, the City years. Yeah, which is more difficult to hold. Hard to, hard to get, get hold, hold of, of, yeah. Hard to get hold of, yeah. Um, but fortunately, I've got, I, I was an early subscriber, so I've got a copy. And that's a fantastic reference. So I think we need to give Gary a great deal of credit for, for all the work he's done in digging up some of this stuff. Well, it, it's virtually yeah. totally reliant on in, the stuff he's done. In that history book, he does say, it suggests, you know, not his word, but that Poyser was a dour man, a pipe, like a pipe smoke, yeah, very, yeah, very pipe distant. Yeah. Pipe. And, and, and there's a story City that... City struggled um, because of, you know, because he was so distant, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he wasn't a, he wasn't a coach. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure he'd been on any coaching courses. Don't know that much about him. But and there was one story that actually tur- he did actually turn up to training in a tracksuit, and the players actually took the Mickey out of him, yeah. and, and not not in a friendly way. Uh, so, so there doesn't seem to have been a great deal of respect for him as a manager. No, and that was probably the beginning of the end when they started doing that. To be honest, because he, he, yeah, if you lose the respect, was. yeah, yeah. So, um, Attendances then were going down even further. So by the time we got to, say, Poyser to over 63, 64 after uh, Les McDowell was sacked, um, and we, we had a respectable, if not spectacular, season. I think we finished sixth yeah. in, the, in, in the old Division Two. And for anyone of a younger kind of era, 
the terms I'm going to use are the old divisional terms. So now, of course, we have the Premier League and the Championship and League One. In those days, it was just Division One, Division Two, Division Three, Division Four. Yeah. So when I talk about Division Two, I'm actually talking about what's now the Championship. And we should when I talk about Division yes. One. So it's the Premier League. Yeah, I should also point out. Sorry, <laughs> there were 15 points off a promotion spot in that sixth, but it was only, yeah. of course, it was two points for a win, wasn't it? In those days, yeah. I think it, it was, was 1981 that England I'm changed. Thanks to Jimmy Hill, I think, to three points. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. But, yeah. but it, it was two points for a win in those days. Of course, there were 22 teams in the league, not 20. Yeah. So, so we played 42 games. So, yeah, so it was six, but a long way. We weren't in the race at any point, I don't think. The next season, we slumped to uh, 11th, I think. So we're mid-table in the old Division 2. And um, attendances have gone down now to, our average was, was now 15K. And even at the end of the of the previous season, so the 63-64 season, we were getting attendances, we started getting attendances at home of under 10,000. Now, today, of course, we pride ourselves on our the loyalty of our support through the, the, the grim years in the 1990s, uh, but the support had just evaporated. And you, you kind of got to put it, put it in context because at that point, United were on the up. So they obviously... Busby had started after the war. He built up the Busby Babes, had the Munich air crash, had to go back to rebuilding again. By 1963, um, they were getting there. So you were getting to the era of best Lord Charlton. Um, they won the FA Cup in 1963. They flirted with relegation that season, which we'll talk about shortly, I'm sure. Um, but that, that was the start. And that 63 final actually was the first um, game I ever saw on TV, if I remember rightly. Uh, they beat Leicester 3-1. So United were on the up. City were very much on the down, down in Division 2. Um, and and the, so the crowds were evaporating. So in that kind of 64-65 season, um, was the, the nadir in terms of crowd uh, size was reached. Uh, January 65, we played Swindon Town at Main Road and literally just over 8,000 people it was uh, 8,015 people turned up to see us play Swindon. Um, one of the Swindon players that day was, of course, Mike Summerby. Yeah. So uh, obviously he came to us soon afterwards. He would have been no, under no illusion about the scale of the, the level of disenchantment um, when he signed for us later that summer. And, and certainly the fans were, were starting to get disenchanted. And that's the, funnily enough, that's the era I started becoming a City fan, when it just wasn't cool and if you think back a few years to, I don't know, maybe you're, when you were a, a young lad, maybe it wasn't cool to be a City fan uh, um, in those days. Not Certainly much. if you're in, the, in your 30s. Well, I started around 81, so there was a cup final, but then, of course, there was yeah. relegation. Yeah. So I certainly didn't, do, yeah. I think I, I think a lot of the old, older fans have did it as a kind of uh, rebellion in a way because, yeah, they were the the cool yeah, the yeah. cool team or whatever, or the big, the glamorous this, team they were not. But. You've got the City team down in the middle of Division 2. You've got United team starting to become the glamour team in Division 1. So all the kids, all the kids that I was at school with were, were all United fans. And, and, and I was kind of, I, I, I say lucky, was, was I lucky or unlucky? I don't know. Just happened to be my best pal, Ray, was a fanatical City fan. He was one of the ones that went in this 8,000 crowd. And I always remember him coming back to school um, in January after the Christmas holidays, we'd beaten Scunthorpe something like 8-3. And he was full of this. And this sort of, because I had no 
particular family allegiance. My dad wasn't into football, although all the rest of my family, both on my mum's and my dad's side, were United fans. So it would have been very easy to be a United fan because Ray almost brainwashed me into being a City fan. I was a City fan in the kind of early, mid-60s when it really wasn't cool to be that, which is kind of, a, I guess, a badge of honour in some ways. Um, so, so there we are, you know, we, we've got this context of um, City down in the doldrums in Division 2, the crowds are going down, the revenue is going down, the club's skint, um, our neighbours are on the way up who, who'd had their own problems, and fans are getting, the, the, the few, the relatively few fans who are left are getting quite agitated, and I think there was a precursor of the swales out type demos, yeah. and there was some fan unrest and uh, demonstrations against the the board and Poyser and um, things were pretty grim, uh, basically. So uh, you know there was no uh, multimillionaires like John Wardle who could dig a, dig us out of a hole. Uh, the chairman was um, Albert Alexander, who was a bit of a legendary figure, but he he wasn't a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so we're totally reliant on, on gate money and gate money is going down. And obviously the club realised then that the board decide they've got to do something. So it's not clear whether Poyser resigned, was sacked, uh, or was told to resign or he would be sacked. It's probably one of those mutual um, agreement type arrangements. But around Easter time, um, Poyser left the club before the end of the season. And the former city star, Fred Tilson, uh, and, and someone's asked me to do a um, podcast about Tilson, which I'll probably do. Uh, he came in to manage the team uh, for the remainder of the season. So it wasn't that spectacular season. We were mid, mid-table in Division 2. And, and the problem was the board, because McDowell had been there 13 years and, and Poyser had been his assistant, the board had never actually had to go out to market and um, appoint a new manager. And so they had to be very careful. Uh, they had no experience of doing this. And they had to think very carefully about the sort of manager they wanted. Um, and, and interestingly, there were, um, from what I gather, or, or reading between the lines, their, their kind of spec for the job was someone who brought a club out of division, what was then Division 2 into the higher division. So there were a number of candidates that fitted that bill. And the most high profile at the time, and his name was linked with the job, apparently, whether it was ever seriously offered to him or discussed, I don't know, was Bill Shankly who'd been at Liverpool by then a few years, and, and like Busby at United, had started building a very, very good team at Liverpool. But he'd taken them out, he'd taken them out of the second division, and obviously they, was, they were winning cups and leagues by this time. So Shankly was been there and had done it, um, and his name was apparently linked in the press with the City, with the city job, because everyone knew City were looking for a new manager, because Poyser had obviously gone and there was a vacancy. Uh, another name that got discussed was former City legend Peter Doherty. He played with us with great distinction in the uh, period prior to World War II and then gone to play for Derby. And if you talk to anyone you know, in their 80s who w- witnessed that pre-war era, they will all tell you that forget Bell, forget Silver, Doherty could do everything that they could do and more. Uh, but he'd not managed... Um, since he stopped managing in about 1960. And I think he was actually, I'm not quite clear of this, I think he was actually doing some scouting for Bill Shankly at Liverpool. 
So again, there was speculation. The press was probably no better in those days than it is today. And there was a lot of names being mentioned. But but one name that came completely out of left field um, was was that of Joe Mercer. Yeah. And that kind of took the football world by surprise. And I think why it took the football world by surprise, you've got to dig into Joe Mercer's history. Yeah. I'll just... Uh... Just say very briefly, you, you talked about that United being on the up. It's often been the way with City when we're at our lowest. It's made worse by United being on the up. Uh, and in Gary's book, it does actually mention the vice chairman, Frank Johnson, suggested merging City and United. And he seemed, in, I don't know, probably around 64 this was, and he seemed pretty serious about, it was a serious suggestion and even talked to United about it. Uh, and obviously the out, you know, the outroar from it, the outrage from City fans, it was eventually quashed. He even, this uh, Frank Johnson also wanted to change the leagues into North and South as well, uh, one of his many many great ideas. Uh, and because, yes, because yeah. obviously the World Cup was coming, wasn't it? So United were not only on the up, they were, uh, I assumed they were, would host some World Cup games, so we're having the ground tarted up as well. So it just made it worse in a way that, you know, just to see their ground being developed. Uh, Frank Johnson said if we did merge, we'd play at Old Trafford. Uh, and I don't think that went down very well at the time, understandably. No, no, I think I think I forgot to mention that, but yeah, so thanks for bringing that up. But yeah, yeah, I think this this contributed to the whole air of despair and, and anger around the club at the time. Yeah. Because um, that obviously was the last thing any City fan would want to do, merge with United. Yeah. Uh, and, and Frank Johnson actually comes into the story um, later on, which we'll probably discuss in part two. Okay, well, um, well, shall, we, shall we have a quick look at Mercer then? Uh, well, let, well, let's go to Mercer yeah. because um, <laughs> Joe Mercer, I say, there was a reason why his appointment was, was came as something of a surprise. But to, to go back into the history of Joe Mercer, and his history is fascinating. Joe was um, a legendary player. Uh, he was born on um, literally days before the outbreak of World War One in Ellesmere Port. Uh, his father had been a professional footballer. He played for um, Nottingham Forest, but he'd gone off. He joined up in World War One, went to fight in the trenches. Unfortunately, he was wounded. Well, he was um, gassed in a chlorine gas attack and taken prisoner by the Germans. By the time he came home, uh, Joe's father came home in 1918 or whatever it was. He, he was uh, his health was broken. Um, conditions weren't very good for the POWs in those days, and he'd suffered this chlorine gas attack. Uh, Joe, I think, was only um, four at the time he came home, and uh, his father only lived for another four years. Uh, I think Joe was seven or eight when his father died. But while Joe was little, his father obviously uh, couldn't play football, but he would pass on some um, hints, tips. He would uh, help Joe uh, you know, play with the ball. And one of the things he did, which helped helped him in his later career, was encouraging to use his left foot. Now, obviously, most people are naturally right-footed, as, as Joe was, but his father worked on Joe to get him to use his, his left foot. So um, but by the time his father died, Joe was about eight, nine, he was actually reasonably competent on um, with both feet. Uh, and he loved football. You know, his father was a footballer. His father passed on his love of football. Joe loved playing football. But the problem he had at the time, and, and, and again, in the in the old days... There wasn't the academy systems that we have now. So, you know, we're picking up kids at five, you know, five years old and, and 
they're going all the way through or being dropped. In those days, and, and I can remember this, is you, you played for your school team. And, and if you played for your school team, you might get noticed for Manchester boys at the right, right age group. And you play uh, play for Manchester boys. And, and at some point when you left school, if you were good enough, one of the clubs would pick you up as a trainee. Uh, this wasn't... So, so that, that was, sorry, that was the system up to relatively recently when the academies all started. The problem Joe had was they didn't play football in his school or around. There was no organised league, league in Ellesmere Port. And um, this, if, if, if that would have continued, Joe would never have made it as a professional footballer and probably a manager. So, so the guy we have to thank for, for putting that situation right is a guy called, a school teacher called Billy Roberts. And he came from Wales uh, to teach in Ellesmere Port at Joe's school. Uh, and he was a keen footballer. He got the teams going and he got local league going in Ellesmere Port. And there's an interesting, actually, connection, uh, further connection to City, in that uh, through a long teaching career, Billy Roberts went on to be a headmaster in the Ellesmere Port area. And when Joe went to, uh, as we'll see later, Joe managed Aston Villa, uh, Sheffield United and Aston Villa, then City. And if he came across any promising youngsters, Billy Roberts would tell Joe about them and, and Joe would send someone to have a look. And one of the uh, youngsters he told Joe about uh, was a guy called Ian Bowyer. He obviously went on to play for City and then won the European Cup under Clough at Forest. So anyway, Billy Roberts, to go, to go back to kind of the early years, the 1920s, Billy Roberts got football organised around the Ellesmere Port area and, and, and Joe was playing for the um, representative team. Um. He also played for a local club, a local amateur club, and, and his payment for the game was a bag of vegetables. Um, which, you know, when you think about the f- footballers today with, uh, you know, tens of thousands of pounds a week. But it was very useful because obviously his father had died, his mother didn't remarry. Um, there were four kids in the household, the money was quite tight. So a, the, the weekly bag of vegetables came in really useful in the Mercer household. Uh, and then, at late, then he got to the stage where he left school. And of course, if you know Ellesmere Port area, you know there's a big Shell refinery there, yeah. and that's where most people went to work. As as did Joe. He didn't really take to working life. He had a series of messenger type type jobs, and uh, but, but he didn't really. All he wanted to do was play football. He played for the Shell team. He was still playing for local other other clubs. So he was actually spending more and more of his time playing football. And that caused a few problems at work. Uh, and, and actually, his boss called him in and said, look, um, you're going to have to make up your mind. Do you want to work at Shell full time or do you want to play football? Which I suppose was meant as a, you know, get your head down, lad, and, and start earning a living. But Joe actually took it as a serious <laughs> question and said, I want, to t- I want to play football. Um. There was never any doubt in his, his mind. And fortunately, uh, he'd been noticed by his local club, Everton. And they signed him up in um, 1932. So he was uh, 18, just 18 at the time. And the funny thing, if you didn't, if, if you'd seen Joe Mercer, you may have seen pictures of him. But Joe actually was quite bandy-legged. He, he certainly didn't look like a, a footballer. When you look at Sergio Aguero with his kind of tree trunk thighs, uh, Joe had was quite spindly and had band, bandy legs. There's even a story, a dog kind of, he got out of a taxi, a dog ran through his legs <laughs> um, somewhere. And when he first appeared in the uh, Everton dressing room, because the Everton star at the time was a centre forward called Dixie Dean, who holds the all-time 
season scoring record of something like 60 mm. goals. And Dean took a look at um, Joe Mercer, Joe Mercer's legs and, and called over to the rest of the dressing room. Apparently said, hey, lads, look at those legs. They wouldn't last a postman a morning. But as it happened, um, Dixie Dean knew Joe's, Joe's father because, again, they, they both played locally. And he kind of was a – he took the young Joe under his, under his wing, really, and there was quite a good bond between them. And at that time, Everton were a very glamorous club. I know it's hard to – quite a big club these days, really, but obviously not, not achieving their potential. Uh, in those 1920s, Everton were a, possibly the, the glamour club of the time. And largely due to Dean's presence, who was kind of a, a superhero to Everton fans. So anyway, Joe uh, was an apprentice at Everton, and, and and in those days, obviously there was a reserve league. You played, you applied your trade in the reserves, and and occasionally you'd get the call to the first team if you were good enough, or there was a, they needed you. And uh, ironically, when uh, Everton were playing in the 1933 FA Cup final, playing City, there was a bit of a fixture pileup leading up to the game. And the, the manager at the time decided he needed to rest players, which um, the players didn't want to be rested, but that was the manager's view. And so Joe was uh, called into the team. Uh, some of the reserves got the chance. Um, Joe was what, what they call a right half, which I guess is right side of midfield in those days. So, um, and a right half had to be both an attacking player and a defending player. So it, it's almost like a... A Fernandinho on the wing, if you like. Or wing back now, almost. Wing back, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But not quite a wing back because they weren't, not quite a wing back. They were kind of the first line of defence, really, and the the full back was the second line of defence. But yeah, it's of that ilk. What what served Joe well was his ability to use both his left and his right foot because he could fill in on either side. There was a guy called uh, Cliff Britton who was the first choice right half. But, um, say, Joe could play on either side and actually made his – first started playing regularly on the left-hand side because Britain was virtually replaceable. Um, but then Britain got injured and Joe moved over to the right. And then um, kind of the war came. Um, but just before the war, the, the Everton manager, who who taken quite a shine to Joe – um, died suddenly. The guy was called Tom McIntosh. And just to explain about managers in those days weren't like Pep Guardiola, Arsene Wenger, Mourinho in those in these days. They, they were more administrators. So if you can imagine Bernard Halford, bless him, running the team, uh, that that's the sort of situation. They were they were club secretaries first, and managed team matters was kind of their second priority. Um, so Theo Kelly, who was the, the club secretary, um, assistant secretary, um, he came in as manager just before the war and, um, he took a dislike to, to Mercer and and Dean and and maybe others, I don't know, but he didn't fancy either of them. And, um, Dixie Dean was on his way out and was replaced by another legend of the game, Tommy Lawton. But Mercer decided to, to, to hang on. And in that last pre-war season, 38-39, um, Everton actually won the league. So he got his first, Joe's got his first honour as an Everton player, but things were very uncertain because Theo Kelly just took a dislike to him and Joe didn't like Kelly. And things were not good between them. And at this time, um, 
1939, Joe is kind of in his mid-20s, should be getting to the peak of his career, and then World War II comes along. And what was arranged for World War II was a lot of footballers went into the physical training corps. Obviously, they were quite fit and used to doing a lot of running. So uh, so Stanley Rouse, who was the chairman of the FA at the time, uh, went on to become a uh, president of FIFA and obviously gave his name to... uh, a lot, which was good in football, he sort of cooked up a deal whereby footballers would go into the physical training court rather than go and serve in normal units. Although there was a bit of a fudge because they had to go into a normal unit first, but Joe only lasted there two weeks and they moved into the training court. And a lot of the footballers, people like Matt Busby, Frank Swift, Joe, all ended up in this physical training court. Um, and this was quite, again, probably why a lot of these managers were so post-war managers were so good at man management because they'd come through the army. So they knew about leadership skills. They knew how to lead and motivate a group of men. And Joe was no no exception. Um, and at this time, again, just before the war, he met his future wife, but well, to be future wife, um, a, girl called, a lady called Nora Dyson. Although she was quite a bit, about five or six years younger than him. Uh, and her father was a su- successful grocer. So he had a chain of grocery shops uh, in Merseyside. This was kind of become quite important. Anyway, so um, th- there wasn't a fixed league during the war, but um, there was a series of ad hoc games uh, and players would basically turn up for whatever club they happened to be near at the time. And the main beneficiary, funnily enough, was Aldershot because obviously yeah. there's a big army depot at Aldershot. So anyone who was down at the army depot at Aldershot turned, up for all- turned out for Aldershot on a, on a Saturday. And Aldershot probably had the, the biggest superstar team ever in history. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, pound for pound, you, you'd get p- people like Busby, Mercer, Frank Swift, all the legends of the day would turn out for Aldershot. So, um, it, you know, it was, it was a great time to be an Aldershot fan, certainly the, the, the war years, even if it wasn't great generally. Uh, and there was a series of representative games at the time as well. England would play Scotland. So uh, and Joe became captain of the England team. So he was doing quite well in his his career, even though the league wasn't on. Unfortunately, in virtue in the last kind of um, wartime international against Scotland, Joe uh, got something like a cartilage injury, and um, it affected his playing when he went back to Everton. And uh, say so the manager Theo Kelly, who who take the dislike to Joe, as we said, he thought Joe was malingering. Basically, he thought Joe was exaggerating his injury because he didn't fancy playing for Everton. Uh, Joe wasn't. I mean, he did have a cartilage problem. It took him a long time to get over it and a lot of treatment. And there was a showdown, basically, and Joe demanded a move. But so obviously Joe was quite a hero at Everton. Uh, By this time, we're talking about 1946-47. Joe was born in 1914. So he's in his 30s. and you'd imagine coming to the end of his career. And at this point, his father, this is where he's, he was married at this point. At this point, his father-in-law suggested Joe came in the grocery business with him. And, and Joe did that. Well, kind of, again, can you imagine it today? Yeah. I mean, David Silver running a cash and carry yeah. in Gorton while he's playing. I mean, maybe, it's, maybe uh, a, a fashion you know, shop or something. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that George, was a, yeah, the thing the in the 60s. Best Mike, thing, yeah. yeah, George Best and Mike Summerby. Talk about that in a minute, actually. Um, but um, 
it turned out actually when he'd been having treatment for his for his injury during the war, it'd been the Arsenal physio who had been giving him the treatment. When Arsenal realised he was available, they came in for him. And um, it was a big thing because obviously he was running this, helping his father-in-law run this grocery business. He was living on Merseyside. Uh, he, he still was having treatment for his um, knee. So, so basically, he reached an agreement with Arsenal that he could stay on Merseyside, but Everton wouldn't let him train with them. So he had to go to Anfield to train with Liverpool. Running the grocery store during the week and basically travelling to wherever Arsenal were playing, either Highbury or away at weekends. And all the time he was getting treatment for this ongoing injury, which was taking a while um, to get rid of. And in actual fact, one of his last games for Everton, I forgot to mention this, was um, against Matt Busby's Manchester United. And I'm not even sure if it was his last game, but that was the game that set the league attendance record at right. Main Road. Just yeah. as on the side, 83,260. And in fact, uh, it was near the end of the season that they held United to a draw and went on to win, a crucial draw, went on to win the title. Um, so anyway, Joe went to Arsenal and um, early on in his career won, uh, won the FA Cup and was voted Football of the Year. So you know, he's left Ar- Everton a bit of a legend. He's gone to Arsenal and... And you know, yeah. doing even better. Uh, but by this time, so this would would by this time now he's thirty six, I think. And um, so, so, so this is nineteen fifty. So he's thirty six. I'm thinking about retirement. But again, he decided he was a fairly tenacious, determined guy, and he decided to carry on for a while. Anyway, nineteen fifty two, Arsenal lost the F, F, FA Cup final, but they won the league again. So they nearly got the double. Uh, sorry, the one that began the following season, 53. And you'd think now by this time, he's, it's uh, August 1914, he's 53, he's 39, or coming on to 39. Um, he's, just won, he's just won the league, he's won the FA Cup with Arsenal. So he's got um, you know, a number of medals. You'd think it'd be a good time to, to step down. And, and, and he was apparently serious, seriously thinking about stepping down. And certainly Nora, his wife, wanted him to, to retire from football and go and work in the grocery business. But he decided to give it one last season, which is a, a fateful decision, as it often is. Um, and towards the end of that 53-54 season, he got a bad broken leg. Uh, and, and that basically was the end of his playing career. So he was out of football. He was doing the grocery business full time and he was doing a little journalism as well. So he was writing match reports for the papers. Um, he hated being out of football. He'd be doing well at the grocery business and, and it was a very successful business. Um, yeah, th- th- and the Dysons became a you know, moderately well-off family uh, through it. I say Joe just wanted football. And uh, in the summer of 1955, Sheffield United approached him who were then in the second division. Uh, no, sorry, they were in the f- division one, but struggling. They sacked their manager and they approached Joe to take over. Um, Unfortunately, he couldn't keep them up, so they went down to a bottom of Division 1, which must have been particularly galling, as Sheffield Wednesday had won the second division championship. So as United went down, Wednesday came up. You can imagine yeah. it you know, the other way around in, in Manchester. So that was particularly galling for Sheffield United fans. Um, 
And he did well enough at, at United, but at Sheffield United, but not enough to get them back into the into the top flight, really. And at one point, his old club, Arsenal, one of his old clubs, Arsenal approached him about going to manage them. And it's a bit unclear what happened, but the most likely explanation is Sheffield United simply wouldn't release him. So whether Joe wanted to do it or not, or wanted to wanted to give kind of Sheffield all, Sheffield United all his attention, well, it's not quite sure. But anyway, he ended up staying at United. The problem was Sheffield United, we're, we're never going to be, despite their history, we're never going to be one of the, the, the kind of top performing clubs. Um, money was tight and he would turn up and found that a player had been sold that, because they needed the money, uh, which and a player he wanted to keep. At that point, um, Aston Villa, who were in Division 1, and again, we're going through the same thing that Sheffield Wednesday had gone through. Aston Villa were a much better, regardless of a much bigger club, than Sheffield United, um, they also sacked their manager at, at the time. And, and Joe uh, applied for the job because he was getting a bit fed up at Sheffield United. But it, it was interesting because I mentioned before that that kind of managers weren't really managers in those days. Yeah. They were more admin people. And Joe's precondition for accepting the job, that he would be a manager in the sense of the word that we know it now. So it would, he would be responsible for all football affairs and only football affairs. Whereas before, the, the, the club set, basically boards had run everything uh, and told the club secretary what to do, who to pick, players to buy, things like that. So, so Joe went to Villa on this understanding that he was a manager in the fullest sense of the word. And people like Herbert Chapman and Arsenal had kind of set the scene. Obviously, Busby at United was doing it. So it was... Um, this was the, the kind of coming pattern whereby the separation of the admin duties and the football duties and football was a full-time job for the manager. So at, um, not long after the, well, on the 1958, so uh, in the year of the Munich disaster, we took over at Villa. Um, and interestingly enough, City come into the picture again because Villa were down at the bottom and they were playing West Brom. And if they beat West Brom, City would be relegated with Portsmouth. So, so we're in the picture again. However, they, they drew. So City escaped by the skin of the teeth at that point. And, and Joe had had his second experience of relegation in his first season in charge, as had happened in Sheffield. The difference was that Villa had the resources to, to get back, and they did so at the first attempt. So you can, you can see now, perhaps, by the City board, looking at someone like Joe Mercer, Villa had gone down, and they come back at the first attempt and, and Joe Mercer. And Joe Mercer, again, had a great reputation for managing yeah. young players and bringing them through. And w w when Villa got back into the first division, he had a budget of 25000 apparently to spend on players, but he insisted that 25000 was spent on building a decent training facility, which Villa didn't have at the time. Many clubs didn't have at the time. And um, so, so, so Joe was building a reputation of being, a man, say, a manager who believed in good facilities, he believed in young, uh, bringing young players through. And one of the young players he brought through uh, from Villa was um, George Graham, mm. which I didn't know till I, till I read up on it. And um, they, they did, Villa did quite well. So um, they came ninth and seventh in the first two seasons back in the top flight. And they, he, Joe Werser won the um, very first League Cup, which actually started in... 60-61 season, but the final 
which was too leg, didn't play, take place till the following season. So again, he's got Villa back and he's won a cup. So again, you can see this pattern of something which might be attractive to a club was like he, City. Was he not also thought to promote attractive football as well at the time? Or yes, so, yes, which would have helped uh, as well. Yeah. So. would have helped as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so he's there till yeah. But, so there till sixty three. So there's yeah. a pat, you know, there's a template there. Manager who's you know managed a club out of Division Two, he's managed them to to you know a respectable league position. He's won them cups. You can see where that's yeah. kind of going. And the problem is, Villa then started to slip back. I'm not quite sure why, but 62-63, they're a danger of relegation. But again, <laughs> City come into the picture, uh, and of course, 62-63 was the seasons we talked about. City were rele- relegated. Les McDowell was sacked, and um, Villa beat City 3-1 late in the season to ensure basically City were relegated and they were saved. So again, there's this kind of interconnection between the two clubs. Um, so Villa is still in the top flight, but things are getting very tough and the pressure's on. And, and, and again, they're at the bottom. Um, and it was at the time, again, when, when managers didn't have the whole army of coaches and assistants that they've got, you know, when you look at City. Pep Guardiola's got all his assistants and Brian Kidd and Mikel Arteta and all his guys from uh, it's Barcelona days, but a manager basically did it on his own. Uh, and the strain started to tell on Joe and effectively he had a stroke. Um, he apparently was working on his car one day, felt felt, felt a bit unwell, felt pins, pins and needles, went to hospital and, and they diagnosed he had a stroke. So obviously he had to take some time off, uh, which, which uh, and the fact that Villa was struggling must have preyed more on his mind. And while he was recuperating, the Villa board took the decision to sack him, but they didn't tell him until he actually got a bit better and came back into work. And the story goes that he came back came back into Villa, was in his office, was going through the mail. The chairman asked to see him and started kind of inquiring obliquely about his health. And then Joe realised that, this, that they were, what they were getting at was, you know, we don't think you're well enough to do the job. Uh, it's too much of a strain. We'd like you to leave. So this was kind of hushed up a little bit. Um, he was basically put on gardening leave. So normally he was still the villa, villa manager, but basically he wasn't. And it wasn't really announced until um, July 64, 1964. Obviously, this took Joe out of football completely. Then. So it gave him a chance to have a bit of rest and recuperation. He was doing it again, went back to doing a bit of uh, journalism, writing match reports, but was kind of quite eager to get back to management, but knew his health was a problem. And this is why his appointment was seen as being a bit of a surprise because everyone knew that Joe Mercer had yeah. health issues. a risk, therefore, of course, yeah. And therefore a risk. But as you've so, already said, City were not very... Uh, didn't have the experience of appointing managers because Poyser was the only one in, what was it, 13 years? 14? Yeah, who'd come up... 15 years, 13 yeah. 15 years, who'd come up through, through the ranks. But they must have seen something in Mercer... I say, we talked about this template of, you know, he'd done it um, He'd done it with Villa. He got Villa out of Division 2 into Division 1 and done very nicely. They were looking at, apparently looking at Bill Shankly, who'd done the same for Liverpool. So you can see why Mercer, who was available, keen to get back. To talk about Shankly, he was being talked about. I doubt he would no. have left Liverpool at that point. 
really had started to achieve success to come to City, struggling City. I don't know, he might have done. Um, somehow, I doubt it. So, so whether kind of Shankly was just one of these things that clubs do, you know, it's the old transfer window thing, isn't it? You know, Ronaldo to United um, to get all the fans interested. Whether Shankly was ever a realistic option, I really don't know. But um, it, it, um, Mercy was available. He wanted the job. The city board wanted him. But there was one, again, one precondition that Mercer put on taking the job. He was realistic enough at that point to know he couldn't do that yeah. all on his own again. And, and, and doing the job he'd done at Villa would lead to, would not help his health. So he's, he insisted that he, he could bring in a young assistant who would take a lot of the pressure off him. And that's where Malcolm Allison... And, and it begs the question, how on earth... If we look at Allison, he's, he didn't have... Am I right in saying he did not have the uh, success as a player that Mercer had? Uh, he'd actually dabble in even as a car salesman. And did he not have a... He even well, had a yeah, lung removed, right. so he obviously that... that. It, well, well, Allison, if we, if, we, if we talk for a kind of yeah. couple of minutes about Malcolm Allison. Um, He'd started as a, again, he was another one who um, started work, started doing an ordinary job for a living, but wanted to play football. Went to Charlton Athletic for, for a short while as an apprentice, but there was nothing really happening at Charlton. And, and then um, Malcolm was born in 27, I think, 27, yeah. And of course, he was called up towards the end of the war. Uh, well, no, sorry, called up after the war. So he just missed World War Two. He was called up um, just at the end, December of 45, I think, something like that. He was posted out to Austria and um, he got to see the Austrian national team training at the Prater Stadium in Vienna, which was the scene of a later city triumph when he was, uh, him and Joe Mercer were managing us. And he was really impressed by the way they were being trained, that you know, the training routines were innovative, they were interesting, they all served a purpose. And he came back um, determined to um, make an impact. He, he, Malcolm was a man of firm opinions, yeah. and he had a firm opinion on how football yeah. should be played. Uh, but Charlton was stuck in the past. It, 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 it hacked Malcolm off. Um, and actually, his first team debut for, again, City come into this, Malcolm's first team debut was in December 49 at Main Road, and Charlton lost 2-0. Um, and he only played one other game for Charlton a few days later, which they also lost. So he didn't have a very good record at Charlton. He was quite outspoken about the, the futility of the training, which and, and that probably had an impact. And I think um, Charlton were looking to get rid of this fairly gobby um, yeah. opinionated guy who was telling them how football ought to be paid, played. Fortunately for him, one of the senior players at um, Charlton at the time was a guy called Benny Fenton. And Benny's brother, Tom, was manager at West Ham. And Benny said to Tom, you know, there's a player here you should look at. He's, he's a bit out of favour at Charlton, but I think he can do a job. And he was centre-half, Malcolm Allison, basically. And um, so he went to uh, West Ham. Now, West Ham's got this rep reputation as a kind of academy of you know, uh, yeah. good football. It certainly did have. But at the time, they were kind of um, in a bit of a bad state. So they were down in the lower reaches of uh, the old Division 2. Uh, they were pretty skint. But they had some actually good players. So John Bond was a player there. He went on to manage 
uh, us, among others. Franco Faro went on to manage United, was there. Uh, Dave Sexton, Noel Cantwell, uh, Andy Nelson, all went on to be decent managers. Um, they were all at West Ham. So there's a lot of guys. One of the reasons I think the, all these guys went on to be good managers was because uh, Tom Fenton, who was the West Ham manager, he wasn't a particularly technical manager, a bit like George Poyser at, at City. Um, he, he was a bit of a Harry Redknapp, in fact, in many ways. He loved the wheeling and dealing of transfers um, rather than the yeah. actual training side of things. So, so Malcolm took the lead, really, and he was quite happy to leave the training and the tactics almost to the players. Malcolm, being a very, being a very strong character, very opinionated guy, the players would gather after after training in the local cafe, and they spend hours talking about tactics and, and moving salt and pepper pots around. And, um, and Malcolm was the, the leader in these discussions, so he started to shape the training and tactics at West Ham, even though he wasn't even a particularly senior player. Um, so, uh, so uh, and basically over the years, over the next few years, West Ham got better and better and better, and a lot of that was down to Malcolm. He'd actually also go in and coach the youngsters in a couple of evenings a week. So he was, you know, you've got this picture of a guy who has this absolute belief in the way football should be played and about his ability to do it and to transmit it to other people. So it's a calling almost with him, you know, yeah. to, to, to get teams playing better football and more technical football, more tactical football. Um, and when we get to the kind of 1957-58 season, uh, West Ham are at the stage now where they're favourites for promotion. So Malcolm's done his job. Tom Fenton's let, let him get on with it, basically. He's not interfered. Very laissez-faire manager. And West Ham now are on the verge of promotion. And then coming back from a game, Malcolm starts coughing. Uh, and he can't stop coughing. He's bringing stuff up. So he just assumes he's got flu or a chest infection. He goes off and gets x-rayed. And it turns out he's got tuberculosis, which is quite serious. Doesn't really happen these days, thank God, but... Uh, very serious disease. And the next thing is he's had one of his lungs removed, uh, which couldn't be saved. So um, this basically um, looks like the end of his playing career. And um, But Malcolm, again, being a fairly determined character, determined to get back. And he actually made a comeback in the reserves the following season. And his centre-half partner was a promising young player called Bobby Moore. And he influenced Bobby very heavily. The call came for a centre-half in the first team, and it was a toss-up between Malcolm and Bobby Moore. But given the fact that Bobby Moore was was new, a uh, new young player, very promising, Malcolm was obviously at the end of his career. By this time, he's in his 30s. He's only got one long. There was only ever going to be one outcome. Bobby Moore went into the first team, and Malcolm realised that that was the end of his playing days. And, and it's rather odd, but... For a guy who was so passionate about coaching, the next two years he actually lived a fairly, what you might call a dissolute life. He effectively became a professional gambler. He fell in with a kind of a, a criminal, semi-criminal element. Uh, apparently he knew the Cray twins quite well. Um, uh, made and lost a load of money. Um, then, then somehow um, Cambridge University, and this took a couple of years of his life, and you know who knows where he might have ended up. But Cambridge University offered him a, a job coach, and this got him back into football. Uh, from Cambridge, um, he then ended up at um, non-league Bath 
city, which has got his first step on the proper ladder. And one of the first things he went to do there was meet their captain. Uh, and it was a, they were a part-time club, amateur club, and the captain was a bricklayer. And he went onto the building site to find this bricklayer, and he wasn't impressed at all. Um, the guy's name was Tony Book. Ah. And um, he was in his 30s. He was I thought, close to his 30s by that time. Uh, no, he was in his, I think, yeah, he was in his 30s by that time. Uh, and Malcolm didn't like the look of him at all. When he saw him play, he realised that Book was actually very, very fit, very quick, very capable defensively. And from then on, he was, yeah, him and Tony Book came as a pair. Uh, from Bath, he went to, he then went to Plymouth. And, and funnily enough, um, the first proper game, the first game I ever went to um, was uh, Bert Troutman's testimonial in 1964 at Main Road. The first proper game, competitive game I went to, I think, well, the game was certainly Berry against Plymouth at Gig Lane. And I'm pretty sure, I'm not quite certain of the date, but it could well have been 64, 65, when Malcolm Allison and Tony Book uh, were managing and playing for Plymouth. Actually, Colin Bell was playing for, yeah. just started playing and for it, Berry in those Something games. is worth mentioning so, about Troutman. Yeah, as yeah. we mentioned earlier, his career did come to an end at in those poiser last years, didn't they? You know, in the 64, yeah. Yes. And uh, I think he got 48,000 yeah, yeah. into his testimonial, so, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of famous game. Well, I think it was a Peter Swales 48,000, <laughs> apparently. People reckon they were far more yeah. in the ground than... Um, but be, being my dad, he left <laughs> 10 minutes early, traffic. so... Yeah. Never saw the end. Yeah, yeah, and, and that continued, you know, right through to the 80s. So... Um, I'd say, I'd say Bath had done quite and, and funnily enough, uh, when Malcolm was at Bath, their, their high point came, they drew Bolton Wanderers, they got through to the third round of the FA Cup and drew Bolton Wanderers, who were then a first division team. And um, with with about 15 minutes to go, they scored, they were at home, they scored to take the lead. And fortunately, um, a young Bolton player called Francis Lee won and converted a penalty to take the game back to Burnham Park. Uh, well, Lee, I think, scored a couple. And the third, I think they won 3-0 in the replay. Uh, and Francis Lee and Gordon Taylor were the goal scorers. As in, as in our PFA. So, so The one and only. Yes, yes. So, so again, you've got Malcolm. He's got Tony Book as his captain at Bath and then Plymouth. He's seen this, this young kid called Francis Lee for Bolton, who's a bit of a live wire uh, and, and just his sort of player. Um so, so then he's at Plymouth, and Malcolm being Malcolm, the Plymouth board were a bit like the boards of old, whereby they told you what you did, and as a manager, you did it. Malcolm, of course, was never going to accept that sort of um, control, and they told him he had to play the reserve keeper instead of the number one keeper in a, in a game, and Malcolm just threw a paddy and walked out. Uh, or, well, whether he was sacked or resigned, again, it's not quite certain, but that was the end of his Plymouth career. Now, uh, what I should have mentioned was um, the FA used to run coaching sessions at their training centre at a place called Lillers Hall in Shropshire, which is the predecessor to St. George's at Burton-on-Trent. And, of course, a lot of players players and managers would go to these sessions. So a lot of the people, that they, they knew each other. And Malcolm had made a bit of a reputation for himself at these sessions as being someone, again, he was outspoken, he thought about the game, and he'd come to a lot of people's attention. So him and Tony Book actually went off to Toronto for a summer to do a brief spell over in Canada. 
then he came back. He was out of a job and um, th there was no shortage of offers, basically, because a lot of the more experienced managers seen Malcolm at the FA's training courses and wanted him on board. In fact, he was going to go up to Middlesbrough um, to speak to, again, another legendary player who turned manager, Rach Carter, uh, who played alongside, who kind of Brian Clough's playing partner. Uh, and as he was about to set off to Middlesbrough, he got a phone call from Joe Mercer who managed to track him down. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm going up to Middlesbrough. Well, Joe said, well, you've got a pass Manchester on the way. Pop in and have a chat. And say so they'd known each other about 10 years through these coaching courses. And Malcolm said, as soon as he came to Main Road, that was it. He knew he wasn't going anywhere else. So um, Joe said, I've got to clear it with the board. But basically, if I take the job, you know, you'll come with me. And Malcolm said, yes. So that takes us to August 1965. And the partnership is and together. And assume they had a simple goal immediately, which was promotion. Yeah, well, City would say we're down in Division 2. Um, the and club needed, needed promotion quickly, yeah. because the money was... And they needed it quickly, which is why, as we said, Mercer yeah. fitted the template. So why do you think it... So just a very so, quick question, yeah. Sorry, go on. Did it, do you th I mean, we'll discuss this further in the future, of course, but do you think... Was Mercer looking for someone who was the polar opposite of him? Well... You, you could look at it that way, but actually, on the surface, the two were completely different characters. Brash, outspoken, Malcolm Allison, not afraid to ruffle feathers, and Joe, who everybody loved and would give you the arm around the shoulder, pat on the back. But actually, the, the story is that Joe, in his younger years, had been a bit, he'd been a very determined character, perhaps a bit arrogant, thought he could play longer than he did. Uh, and it was this kind of arrogance, belief in himself, which had kind of got into Arsenal and, and ended up playing so long at Arsenal. And he was a very demanding player, captain of, of the team. Um, and, and there is a story that, Al, uh, that that Joe saw something of the younger Joe Mercer in, in Malcolm Allison. But of course, he knew Allison as a, he knew Allison was keen to coach as well. So Allison wasn't going to be a guy. He wanted a guy who yeah. would take the weight off him. But Joe could be kind of the strategist, if you like. Allison would be the tactician, do all the training, uh, and uh, that's that, that's what he wanted. And I think, but but I think he saw something of himself, certainly the younger self in Markham Allison. But he also knew he was getting a very very capable I, coach. I think we should finish part one by looking at their first season in charge. Then uh, it's a little bit in Gary's book about before the matches early in their reign. Uh, one of the two of them would often go up the uh, tunnel before the match just to check that there were any people there to watch them. So it just shows, you know, how much support had dwindled and they were still, they were, yeah, they were yeah, very yeah. worried oh, about, yeah, yeah. you know, making, making a success of we'd this. Lost, so, uh, we'd lost 20,000 from our average yeah. 35 down to 15 in, in, in kind of just a few years. So yeah, obviously the money side yeah. of things so was important. If we look at the club, season then, was it, uh, would you say it was a pretty money. immediate upturn in fortunes? So absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, they there was still a lot of hangers on from the old days. There were a lot of good young players. So there were players like Neil Young, Alan Oakes, Grimpardo, uh, Mike Doyle on the scene. Young and Oakes were already broken through into the first team under Poiser. They've got, got a few games under the belt. Um Pardo and Doyle were still relatively new and both fancied themselves as forwards, uh, by the way. So Pardo came into the team as a forward, but 
but by the end of the season, they'd kind of moved into half-back, then full-back. Um, so it, it's funny how history repeats itself when we're looking at full left full-backs, yeah. left-backs these days, Zinchenko, Delph, uh, both Glimpardo and Willie Donerke, you know, two of our finest left-backs ever, neither of them started in that position. Both started playing much further forward. So, um, again, yeah. you know, just a little of thing, course, history yeah. repeating itself. Um, yeah, of course, they, they bought some players. Um, the chief goal scorer at the time was a player called Derek Kevin, but Malcolm didn't thought Kevin was at the end of his um, kind of usefulness. He wasn't. And Malcolm introduced all these training routines and was deliberately testing Derek Kevin out to see what his attitude was. Didn't like it. Didn't think he was good enough. So there was a bit of a fuss, actually, when Derek Kevin was sold. Um, and they got a player called Ralph Brand from Rangers, was the first new 25,000 from Rangers, and got a really good scoring record at Rangers. I think one in two in, in 120 goals in 200 games, pretty good scoring record. Uh, but he, whether it was the pressure of the move, uh, whatever, he was a complete flop at City. He only got two goals for City. Um, so that was a bit of a, that number one through the door was a bit of a failure. Number two through the door was Mike Summerby, uh, who obviously they'd seen. Uh, and, and Joe knew Mike's father, George, I think he, he was. Um, they play, I think they played together at Aldershot uh, in the war years. So we actually knew Mike as a, as a, as a young kid. Um, basically, he'd watched him develop. So Mike was the next one through the door um, a few days later after Ralph Brand. Uh, and then the next month, they brought an experienced centre-half from Everton, George Heslop. And... Um, the fourth player through the door in that kind of early season was a guy called Stan Horn, um, who was an interesting uh, character because uh, he was um, generally recognised as the first, there's some dispute about this, recognised as the first black player. Um, I think it was mainly mixed race. I'm not sure. I vaguely remember Stan Horn. Um, but he was regarded certainly as the first post-war. There was a, a black player, I think, much earlier in the um, 20th century, uh, around the First World War time, I think. But Stan Horsen was certainly the post, first post-war black player to appear for any any club. We went to his first club. I think we got him from okay. uh, Aston Villa. And he played somewhere else as well. So those were the, the, the first players through the door. And, and, and the promotion season really got off to a flying start. We went seven games, first seven games unbeaten, although we won three and drew four. And... Um, we then lost the eighth game at Cardiff, but then went another eight games unbeaten. So the table was start, starting to shape up, and, and the three teams in the race were us, Coventry and Huddersfield. Uh, and the three stayed together almost to the end, end of the season, um, separated by just a, you know, a couple of points here and there. We, um, we then had a bit of a rocky spell. We, we lost a, a couple of games. Um, but after losing to, to Birmingham in early December, we then uh, went on a really good run where we were unbeaten through till April. So, so by the time we get to end of January, we were top of the division, one point ahead of Coventry, two ahead of Huddersfield, all on the same game. So it's very, very tight. Um, as we get to kind of through February, March, um, we start... March, we hit a bit, bit of a problem because we get involved in some uh, F, a couple of FA Cup games which went to replays. So I think we played, uh, it was Bolton 
uh, we played, and that went to a replay, which we won. We then drew Everton, and we drew the we drew the first game, we drew the replay, and then the, the process was to have a, a third game at a neutral ground. So we had quite a fixture pile-up during um, March. We had um, sorry, Leicester was the other game. So we had two game two FA Cup ties against Leicester, two against Everton, and the third game against Everton was um, in early April. So we had a number of games postponed. Uh, and but Huddersfield, fortunately, Huddersfield, now the Huddersfield not Coventry, really took advantage of that, which was uh, worked in our favour, really. So by the time we get to the end of March and we've got all but this last Everton game uh, out the way, we were level with um, Huddersfield on 45 points, but we had two games in hand because, let's say, points, two points for a win in those days. Uh in April then, catching up on the fixture pilot, I think we played seven games, seven or eight games in 28 days, uh, including this game with Everton. And the unbeaten run came to an end, funnily enough, at Berry, which was Colin Bell's last game for Berry. And at this time, they've been keeping an eye on um, Colin Bell, keen to buy him. And, it, and I should explain, in those days, the transfer window yeah, ran right through March, to Easter. I think was about the time you could... Yeah, end of March, early April, yeah, Easter. Then it... Then the window closed. So you could buy a player all the way through the season up to about Easter time. City were desperate to get Bell. I think he was only 19 at the time. So a bit of a raw talent. But um, desperate, to, couldn't get the money together. So this, the story is, I think we, I think I told it in the uh, in another part. Alison would go down to Gig Lane and watch, watch Barry and watch Colin Bell. And he'd make all these loud comments about... You know, he's got no left foot, he can't head the ball, you know, he's got no tactical sense, blah, blah, blah. Because there were a lot of scouts, Bell had come to, to people's notice, a lot of scouts watching him. Alisson hoped this would put people off. Eventually, City did get the money yeah, together. I think it was about £60,000 we played for Colin Bell. Was it? 40, so. Oh, right, OK, 42000 Don't worry about 60 from. Oh, 60 was Franny Lee. Sorry, I've got my numbers mixed up, yeah. So, um, just before the transfer window closed, we scraped the money together, 42000 to buy Colin Bell. And his and that our our loss only loss in that period was his last game for Barry. I'm not sure if he scored it actually. Um, I think he might have scored in that last game. So by this point, we, the transfer window's closed. We're through the Easter. We're into the Easter period, um, and we're still level on points with Huddersfield, 48 points, and we've still got one game. We've, we've still got two games in hand. We've got a point on Coventry, and we've got three games in hand over them. Now, obviously, this is the champion. The championship, even the championship, is, is now is always. A, I always say it's a league where someone always loses the nerve, and a team that holds the nerve often gets that promotion spot or playoff spot. Fortunately, it, it would have been typical City to lose our nerve, but fortunately, we we held our nerve. We went on an unbeaten run through um, through then to the end of the season, and by the time we got to the end of April. With um, there were still four games left to play, but we were top. We we had four games left to play, but because of the fixture pileup, Huddersfield and Coventry had played forty-one games, so we played thirty-eight, and we were two points ahead. So basically, they've only got they can only pick up two points. So we'd have to lose all our games um, to stand a chance of throwing away a promotion spot. Of course, in those days, again, it was just the top two got promoted automatically. There were no playoffs. Uh, the crucial game was against Rotherham and uh, we only needed a point uh, and we were away at Rotherham and a Colin Bell goal gave us a 1-0 victory 
and that was promotion earned. And actually, in fact, funnily enough, Coventry and Huddersfield, who both uh, been in the running with us almost throughout the season, both of those clubs missed out, and Southampton grabbed the came from almost nowhere um, to grab the second promotion spot. So we won it quite comfortably in the end, which is of course what the board, you know, the job they've been brought in yeah. to do. And it was three-two win at Charlton, I think, secured the title. It's worth mentioning. Uh, attendant, it's the, the Rotherham. Yeah, the Rotherham cool. game actually gave us, I oh, think, right. gave yeah. us the title anyway. I'm not sure how close the man, uh, how close Southampton were, but yeah, but we we, we drew one, drew the last three games, and uh, of course, typical City. Actually, the Rotherham game was away. The next game at Leighton Orient was away, which we drew. The next game was at Charlton, which we drew, and then the game at home. We were already champions yeah. by then. You think they put on a bit of a, you know, display? Hmm. We we drew nil nil with Southampton. Yeah, it's probably worth mentioning, which is pretty. Yeah. Tough. Well, at least we didn't lose, yeah, which well, we did at the last yeah. game at Main Road. <laughs> Probably worth mentioning the attendances as well had recovered. And I think they actually in the in the cup they got I think yeah, they got sixty three thousand against Everton, didn't they? No, so it was a nil nil draw. So, uh, but they did occasionally. Yeah, yeah um, you know, but we were we, both Uniteds or match Uniteds. The, the crowds were, were oh, yeah. variable. So the first home game was against Wolves. We got twenty five and a half thousand. Um, and that was kind of around the base. So that was the numbers we were getting, roughly. By the time it got to the final game against Southampton, we were just over 34,500. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. We will be doing part two of this in the next week or so, uh, looking at the, the glory years ahead. Uh, so do look out for that. Thank you very much.